0: Lord, we come humbly before you today, and we ask, Lord, that you would minister to us now as we open up your word. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. What we have not, Lord, would you give us. And allow me as your mouthpiece, Lord, to make your word plain, Lord, to give it understanding, Lord, so that your people can grow And uh, Lord, be more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and more desiring, Lord, to do your will. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As you know, in uh, Ezra chapter 4, we have the remnant finishing not only the altar, but also the foundations of the temple, and they start burnt offerings and the celebration of feasts, and the the people of of the land come, and they seek to oppose what is taking place. At first, they seem friendly, but we understand that it is simply a guise so that they can be involved not only in the rebuilding of the temple, but also the worship at the temple, because the people that were living there were pluralists. In other words, they worshipped multiple gods, and they wanted to include you know, the God of Israel as part of this portfolio of their worship. But since they were rebuffed by Zerubbabel and company, they start to oppose the work through discouragement, through fear, and then ultimately through frustration. And ultimately, under the barrage of all this pressure, the people stopped the work on the temple in the second year of Darius the king. Now, what's important to note here, it's a little bit confusing. But verse 23 might leave you with the idea that they stopped the work because people were coming in force. But that is actually referring to what was happening in Artaxerxes' day as Ezra is telling the story. He kind of gives this little midsection where he looks beyond the present text, the present story, And he talks about Artaxerxes. But the people in Israel at this particular point in time simply stop because of this ongoing barrage of fear, discouragement, and frustration. They are discouraged. And so, as a result of that, their focus becomes shifted to the building of the temple and to the building of other things and good things, their homes. Their farms, their lands, their businesses. But ultimately, after 16 years, they have neglected the house of God. And that's why when we come to chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, we are told about the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah coming in. And Haggai saying, Consider your ways. And Zechariah saying, Don't be like your fathers who rejected the voice of God. And the people responded in repentance. In fact, what's not recorded there uh, likely was quite a revival of people getting back to what God had called them to. That's verses 1 and 2. The Word of God confronted their sin, and the Word of God ultimately, we find, would sustain them through the process of building the temple. But now, just like chapter 4, men come to question their work on the temple. I mean, they've just got it started again. And you know, it's, it's, it's always that question, isn't it? As soon as you get on fire for the Lord, as soon as you start saying, hey, we're doing this and we're setting these habits and we're setting these, these goals, somehow Satan loves to come in and have his way to seek to undermine this passion, this zeal. It seems like every time the people of God get going, that opposition comes. And so there's a sense of, of a feeling here of deja vu. Here we go again. Here comes the opposition. But there's something different going on here in chapter 5. There's a different tone taking place. The officials that come are actually officials. They're coming representing uh, Darius the king now. And then the leaders of the Jews are also interacting in a much more friendly manner. And we find here this wonderful expression, the eye of the Lord was on the people of Israel. And friends, it's a a wonderful picture for us, isn't it? It's an expression that hints to us that the God of heaven and earth is not only watching what is taking place in Jerusalem, but he is providentially working out his plan in surprising ways. It's It's an indication that something significant is about to take place. And I know probably as we were reading through this passage, really primarily two letters back and forth, you might have thought to yourself, oh man, this is going to be a long sermon. Well, it might be a long sermon, but hopefully it's not going to be a boring sermon. And you'll see that in this passage are some wonderful things that are going to help us understand God and His providence. See, in similar ways, even today, God's eye is on His children. He is watching us, and we can be sure that He is diligently at work carrying out His providence over the affairs of men. So here's my my backdrop proposition for our time here together today. I want want you to be encouraged by what I'm calling the diligent providence of our all-seeing God. Now, it's one thing to to say that God is working providentially, but we use this word diligence here because it's a word we find a couple of times in the text just to say that God is not just simply carrying it out kind of in a carefree way. He is diligently working out His providence. He's watching. So this text will reveal for us the surprising providence of God over His purposes, sometimes through bad things that are taking place, failures that uh, we might experience, confrontations or hassles in this life. God opens a door during those times, which is the, I'm going to say, the plan of his diligent providence. Just think of Joseph with his brothers. Was not God working in his diligence to carry out his plan? What about Moses being placed in the river by his mother? Wasn't God working out his diligence in his providence in carrying out his plan? What about David being chased by Saul and his men looking to kill him over and over and over again. And yet David would not kill the Lord's anointed. It's all part of God's diligent providence. What about Jesus being arrested, tried, and executed on the cross? This one who claimed to be the Savior is now dead, is now buried. But God's diligent providence is still at work. His diligent providence, friends, is a wonderful reality that not only is true in our text, but it's also true today. And we're going to look at it through four sections. I want to begin with what I'm calling a diligent work. Having been stirred up by the ministry of the word, the people of Israel take up to rebuilding the temple with a fresh, God-glorifying Diligence. And this is evident by the report that we're given in this letter. Tatnai, the governor, the providence beyond the river, and this other guy, Shithar, Bazanai. I don't know why I have to hyphenate your first name, but they do, right? And the associates, they come. And they're coming into the, they're in this territory called this, 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 uh, this province beyond the river. And that was actually an official providence. Think, think of the, the empire of Persia now, having various areas of uh, uh, provinces around that they are overseeing. And this one was the beyond the river, beyond the river Euphrates. And these guys are the heads. So they're the officials. They're coming, and they're observing what is taking place. And it's no wonder that they're asking questions. Why are they asking questions? Because here they are in Jerusalem, and there's this building project going on. But where did this come from? Notice the two questions they ask. Who gives you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And then here's another question that they have to deal with. What are the names of the men who are building this building? Wow, I'm going to stick my neck out now, tell you my name. Now, we might be tempted to read here into this passage a harsh tone based on what we studied and looked at back in chapter 4, where we saw all these strategies of the enemy. These men are officials, and they come as officials, and they're asking legitimate questions. And the legitimate questions are, all right, what is going on here? How come all of a sudden, I mean, all of a sudden, the people who have been neglecting the temple are now doing what? They're building this temple, and they're coming in droves to Jerusalem to see the temple built. And notice the language they use. They're using these large stones and these timber. It's quite a commotion. Just uh, this is what is going on here?" And so they come asking these questions. These are reasonable questions. As I was studying this passage, I could not help but think about how our elders talked and prayed during our COVID-19 se- uh, season. How as a church, just like everyone else, we were willing to say, you know what, Well, three weeks, four weeks, we'll try and you know, flatten the curve. We want to be a part of something major that was hitting our country and around the world. And okay, we're going to do our part. But boy, it just lingered and it continued on. And we're struggling with what can we do? How can we, how can we maintain the, the, the heart of God's church? Well, we need community, and community means that you're going to be with each other. So how do you do that? You can do that for, you know, for only so long on Zoom. And if you remember, as we began doing the live streaming thing, we were encouraging uh, you to consider being a part of a bubble. And some of you guys bubbled and gathered together on a Sunday morning, same people over and over. And if you remember, after the service, we would have a, a little time on Zoom where we could kind of meet and greet and talk and all that kind of stuff. We were hungry just to still connect as best we could. But It was insufficient. And then we were thinking to ourselves, shouldn't we be celebrating the Lord's Supper physically together? Are we functioning out of fear rather than out of a faith that is rooted in God's wisdom? And then, of course, we were thinking things like, you know, if I can eat at Elio's or if I can go to Home Depot or Walmart and walk down the aisles, then certainly I can gather with God's people and in a physical building some way, and certainly do it better than the people are doing it in those places. Now, we're not expecting those who are in leadership in our country or our state or our local communities who don't attend gospel-centered churches to understand this desire and this hunger to be together as God's people, because there really isn't this understanding of community, because most of what they do has to do with religion. It's more just going through ceremonies and and performing things and somehow trying to prove your way to God, if they're even religious at all. And if you remember, we encourage you, um, not only after the bubbling, but we were encouraging you to come and gather in the parking lot over here. We're trying to figure out where could we meet, because we didn't have our own facility, and we had a group of people that were trying to figure out where could we meet. And then this opportunity came up, and we're going to meet in the parking lot where Pastor Rob would be preaching and blue light specials. Actually, that's Kmart. But things were happening over at Walmart that were piping into what was going on here. And our sermons, probably someone in this neighborhood, I was praying that someone would hear the gospel that was living around here. But we were out outside, and it was, it was a challenge. But I remember that first day we came together, and it was just like so wonderful to be together even though you're over in that box and I'm over in this box. But it was better than being at home. And the whole point here is this. We wanted to gather as God's people together. And as elders, we were always aware that a government official could show up at any moment asking questions and demanding that we answer some. What gives you the right to be gathering when COVID-19 is a pandemic? Who's in charge here? What are your names? And those questions would not have been a problem for us, and they're still not a problem for us because we believe that we were acting in the best interest of our church family, seeking to glorify the Lord by acting with common sense and a biblical wisdom for the sake of the body of Christ. And we as elders were united, even if it meant that the government Was going to arrest us or take us to court. Now, we weren't trying to fight, we were trying to preserve the church. And I guess the point that I'm making here is this that the kind of stuff that we're reading here in Ezra 5 didn't just happen back then, it happened just a few years ago, where the church has to ask some questions What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Who gives us the authority to do it? And by the way, who's in charge so that we can tell those in leadership who's responsible? My friends, this is a challenge, isn't it? Having asked the questions of the leaders, the officials put together their letter to Darius, and this is how it begins. Just notice there in verse verse 7, right at the end. To Darius the king, all peace, be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid on the walls. The work goes on diligently and prosperous in their hands. So just, you know, bottom line, here's the report. The house of the great God in Jerusalem is being built. It is being built with these huge stones and timber, which is like unusual resources to be, to be used. And the work goes on diligently and prospers. This is a happening place, and it's happening fast. And friends, that is diligent work. Rather than a heart of apathy and self-centeredness, which is what had happened earlier, the Word of God has been acted to stir the people up to go to the work in God's house and to be diligent in their work together. And friends, it's a wonderful testimony for us. It's a wonderful testimony of the power of the Word of God to restore a people to the work God has called them to. It's a wonderful testimony of the eagerness of the the people had in the work of God that God had called them to. It's not just that they were doing it, but they were doing it with diligence. And it's a testimony of the impact of all of that on that local community. And it begs the question, doesn't it? What's driving our work for the Lord? What's driving your work for the Lord? Are we being diligent in our God-given responsibilities? Here are a few questions I put down here. Are we seeking to shine the light of the gospel? Or have we kind of drifted away from that? Have we just... Maybe we've argued our theology so strong that we're no longer feeling responsible even to open our mouths anymore. Are we doing what we can to equip the saints? Are we partnering together to minister to one another through the ups and downs of life? Are we turning to the Lord in prayer when we are faced with difficult challenges? Are we eagerly placing ourselves under God's Word? So the remnant are an example for us, challenge for us of diligent work. But where does that diligent work come from? Well, it's rooted in a diligent work faith. And that's what we see next. Verse 9, then we asked the elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house, right? And we asked their names. Now, the implication here is that Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the others had no problem giving their names uh, to be associated with the, the building of this temple. They were confident in God's call and are willing to stand up and be identified but they go further than simply answering the two questions. And there's a reason for that. Rather than get smug or snarky, which is not an uncommon response, even from Christians, they instead give a full-orbed, God-centered response that helps give the context to their temple activities. Now, friends, in a world where Twitter and Facebook and hashtags and memes are the standard form of communication, especially antagonistic and controversial communication. A clear, biblically reasoned, respectful communication is a lost art, isn't it? It's much easier just to pop back a few words thrown together, but boy, what we have here is this wonderful response recorded for us in a letter. Friends, we need to guard our hearts when we're on those social media platforms. And we need to be mindful to learn even from what the, the Jewish leadership is saying here and is recorded for us. And Zerubbabel and Joshua, they serve a sovereign God whose eye is on them and is working his will through their obedience. So notice now what we can learn from this. It's going to be four headings. Heading number one, identity. We are the servants of the God of heaven. Notice that. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. The first thing they do is they identify themselves fully and completely with the God of heaven and earth. Now, this is they're saying this is not a territorial God. You think of Israel as having their God as well as Assyria as having their God, and you have Egypt and they have their God, and you recognize all those gods to be real and true, and they're saying, no, 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 that's not the case. We serve the God, not of Israel, but of heaven and earth. In fact, in their eyes, there is no other God, man's creation, man's ideas, maybe some satanic activity going on. There There is one God, and we identify with him. And secondly, it is not a new temple that we're building. This is a temple that was already built by a magnificent king of Israel many years before. And if you remember, it's David who had the vision of building a temple, He didn't think it was sufficient for God to reside in a tabernacle, a tent. He he needed a temple. And God said, you know what? Yeah, that's fine. We can do that. But you're not going to build it. Your son Solomon's going to build it. So Solomon was known as as the one who built this incredible temple. Now, they both identify with God, the God of heaven and earth, and with the temple, which is where God meets with his people. Now, friends, it just begs the question again. Are you quick to identify yourself as a servant of the God of the Bible? Are you quick to say, you know, I'm I'm a Christian and I identify with Christ. I'm unashamed about that. Are you bold in communicating your passion for serving God in the building of His church? See, they identify with God and their involvement with His purposes. Now, you might say, well, I'm I'm okay identifying as a Christian, but I may not be as thrilled to identify with the church because, you know, the things that we do as a church. It's one thing to say, okay, you're a Christian, but now you're like actively involved. Okay, that takes it to another level. This is all an important foundation for what we read next. So you have identity. Secondly, you have humility. Look at verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Friends, they know who they are, and they know the history of their nation's sinfulness, and they embrace it. There are people who have come from Babylon because their fathers had rebelled against God and God had judged them and taken their ancestors captive into Babylon. They know their history. They know the judgment that their people were under. And friends, it's a a shameful admission, isn't it? But it's an honest one. Many of the Jews now in Jerusalem would not have been alive there. But they know and admit their nation's past. They come from a a, a generation who turned their back on God and suffered judgment because of it. And friends, there's a humility in these words, isn't there? We're here because of our forefathers' sin. And we're here because the temple was destroyed in judgment against our forefathers' sin. So look around, Tatanai. See all the, the mess that is there? Uh, see the broken down walls of the city? All this happened because of our forefathers' sin against God. You see these large stones, these timber walls. This is all God now at work but these are, this rebuilding is happening because the temple was destroyed. So friends, this humility is also a testimony. This is what the God of heaven and earth will do. In particular, when his people continue to rebel, he'll bring discipline, he'll bring judgment, he'll bring consequence. And it's a testimony to those who are there but He's also a God who restores. He didn't abandon His people. He's even brought them back to Jerusalem. So if there is repentance, there is a way back. And friends, it's a reminder for us that we are the recipients of God's grace in Christ when we have blown it again and again because we're sinners through and through. Now, you've heard this before, but I want to reinforce it again. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are, by our very nature, sinners. Now, one of the complaints that the unbelieving world makes about Christians is that we think that we are better than them. And I would expect that they had encounters with people who call themselves Christians who do think that. But I wonder if we listen to that accusation enough and we're willing to ask ourselves the question if, if they may actually have something. Have we allowed our new identity with Christ to degenerate into a smug pride? Do we look down our nose at those who are in bondage in their sin? Or do we have hearts of compassion to see ourselves in, in their struggles? Do we mock their sinfulness or do we grieve over their blindness and pray for them? See, friends, it's a posture of humility that recognizes I am only here because God has granted me grace. So when people who are unbelievers ask you, hey, how are you doing? You can honestly respond to them by saying, I'm doing much better than I deserve because that is a true statement. My friends, do you still feel the weight of your sinfulness long enough to be reminded of the magnitude of God's grace on your life. I actually think one of the reasons why we have the Lord's Supper is to see and remind ourselves of the magnitude of our sin and be reminded that it is only Christ and His shed blood and His sacrifice on the cross that actually has liberated us from. So that this grace, this wonderful new life we have in Christ is, is fresh, it's new, it's passionate. It's not apathetic. It's not just commonplace. Identity. Humility. Third one here, authority. <laughs> we are the recipients of a royal decree. But with the backdrop of this identity and humility, they basically say this. Look, we're here by the authority of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who had just passed away two years prior to this. In other words, your former king, your former ruler made a decree to send us back to Jerusalem and to rebuild this temple. So if you have an argument, it's not with us, it's with your king. In other words, this is all happening because Cyrus decreed it, but we know that Cyrus decreed it because of God's diligent providence. Remember, he stirred up the heart of Cyrus. So we have this authority, and the authority then ends up with responsibility. And because this decree has been given to us, and we We answered that decree. We answered that call. We have come to Jerusalem not just to work on our homes but to do what Cyrus gave us freedom to do and that is to rebuild the temple. Friends, this is all diligent faith. A a willingness to be identified with God. To be humble enough to be honest about our lives and our sinful lives. To express the authority that you have been given by God or another And therefore, the responsibility that is on your shoulders. And I just I wanted to flesh this out on a practical level and say how how would this work in today's context? And I thought of a number of issues, and and I I thought about this particular question. And I'm not I'm not trying to disparage one group or another, but I want you to hear how this is just really a practical help for us in answering some of the things that the world might bring us. And here's the question: what gives you the right to homeschool your children? or send them to a Christian school. Now, it might be quick and political to say, well, I'm the parent. I have the right to do what I want to do. But you see, what we have here in this response is a full-orbed response that goes back to your identity. So here's how it would go. Identity, I'm a Christian, and I serve the God of heaven, who is the creator and sustainer of all. It is my desire to live for Him and for his glory. That's my identity. Then this humility. I know what a wicked and sinful world this can be because I am guilty of living my life against God. But he woke me up. By his Holy Spirit through his word to show me the depths of my sinfulness and that I was living my life in rebellion against him. He showed me that through Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross, I could be reconciled to him. And through the forgiveness that comes through Christ, I was given new life, a life guided by God's living and breathing word, the Bible. So, identity, humility. Now, I've set the stage to answer the authority question, right? Here's the authority. God's word is clear that it's the parents who are responsible to raise their children. Now, how do, I, how do I get to that statement? If I get to that statement right off the bat, I'm not setting the whole backdrop of how I identify with Christ and how, how I'm aware of my own sinfulness and the sinfulness of the world. God's word is clear that the parents who are responsible to raise their children, no matter what school they would send them to. Now, the state may help by being a supportive friend, but according to to God and his word, right, that's how they would help is according to God's word. According to God and his word, though, God is my authority and I am my child's authority. As a parent, know this. God's placed on your shoulders the responsibility and the authority to carry out your children's education, right? It's not the Christian school. It's not the public school, right? It is your responsibility, your authority. And when the state mocks and denies the God of heaven and promotes and protects beliefs and lifestyles and practices that are in rebellion against the God of heaven, then I have to ask myself some questions. Either I'm going to continue to send my children to a public school, but I'm going to have to be very, very attentive and very, very involved to hear what's being said and to talk with teachers and to interact with coaches. Or I'm going to part ways. And because the state is no longer helping or assisting me as a parent, in fact, they're trying to indoctrinate my children against my Christian beliefs and toward things that God says are an abomination, trying to take away my authority before God. Now, if you have your kids in the public school, I'm not slapping you over this. I'm just trying to help you process through the thinking That argument just standing by itself without the identification, without the humility, is simply an argument. But you root it now into, into what Christ has done through his gospel and the fact that you're identified as a child of God. You're saying, I have to respond this way because God says that I am I have been given that, that responsibility and authority. Therefore, we get to responsibility. Since I belong to God, I am a sinner saved by grace and have been given authority to shepherd my children according to God's word, I will take the responsibility for my children's education. I will determine what is good and healthy for them. I will be responsible for the ideologies that are taught and presented as right or sinful in the classroom. It is my responsibility, and I will see to it that they are taught with excellence and according to God's word. I so said, I'm just processing through these answers here. Now, by the way, just on this topic, if you send your, your children to a Christian school, you still need to be involved. <laughs> you still need to pay attention. You still need to make sure that your, your kids are, uh, you're questioning things that you're hearing from them. You still have to be the, a parent who is responsible. One of the problems is, you know, thinking is, oh, my kids are in a Christian school, and now I can check out as a parent. No, 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 no. You have a responsibility. Again, my point here is to walk through these different, these different steps. And I would say, look, this is diligent faith. You can use these four headings to walk through many more situations you face in this world. Why do you attend church so regularly and with such passion? Well, my identity, my humility, the authority that's given me is my responsibility. Right? Why do you give support? Uh, to the church with your finances or people in other countries. Might be sitting down with a financial planner and saying, I have a way you can save some money. You're giving away too much to the church. And you'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me tell you why I do this. And it's not just, oh, I want to give to the church. You root it in your identity, you root it in your humility, and then this authority that God's given you, and then respond. See, th- th- these are these are wonderful statements. Why don't you drive the best cars, live in the best houses, or have the most expensive clothes? Because I'm not consumed with materialism. Okay, that might be a response, but where is that response from? So you're giving a more full-orbed answer. And I guess what I'm trying to appeal to us here is this, friends, that sometimes we miss gospel opportunities because we are not rooting those questions in our identity. In our humility, we just want to give the answer and kind of step away. When it's an opportunity to say, look, here's why I think the way I think. All right, we got to move on here. You're like, yeah, we do, Pastor Rob. We're still chapter 15 or chapter five. Let's move on, a diligent search. So the guys get their this letter, they send it off. And I want you to notice that What happens next is that there is this search that takes place. Now, by the way, um, the Persians did a lot of things to affect communication that maybe we have no idea of. They created the Persian Royal Road, which they carefully maintained. It was about 1,500 miles in its kind of extent. They invented horseshoes for traveling fast, and, and comfortably on those roads. They created 15-mile stops so that couriers could mount fresh horses. So, so when this letter goes out, it goes fast, and it goes then to, uh, to Darius, who's the king, and he then sends out instructions to have this potential edict search for back into the royal, um, the royal archives. And here's where we have this providence, this surprise. Because they don't find it in Babylon. You think in the story, oh, they'd be going back to Babylon. But they find it, what we would consider, an obscure place. And so the surprise here is that the Persians bother to take time to search out the documents, and they find them in Ekbatana. Anyone heard of Ekbatana before? No, probably not. Well, it was actually the capital of the Medes at that point in time. And I think one of the things you find in reading through Ezra and Nehemiah is that those who were in leadership, particularly the the Persians, would spend the spring in Susa, the winter in Babylon, and then the summers in Ecbatana. And surprise, surprise, in the royal archives there, they find this decree of Cyrus. It's detailed, it's specific, and it affirms everything that Zerubbabel and Yeshua say. Now, friends, hear this. Governments might keep good records which can get lost, buried, or even go up in smoke, but you can be sure that God never forgets. This has been buried in archives that people hadn't paid attention to for so long, right? But God knows it's there. His providence is a diligent providence. You may know the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and just briefly, 1947, a young Bedouin um, um, man who was a shepherd left his flock in search of a particular sheep while he was going through the crags in the, in the mountains there in the northwest side of the Dead Sea. Um, he saw this, this kind of hole in the side, and so he thought, curiously, I'm going to throw a stone and see if it hits anything. Waiting for a thump, instead of hearing a thump, he hears like a, a, a smashing, like a of, um, of the vessels, the clay vessels. And kind of in that culture, you would know what that would sound like. So he investigates more and finds all these, these, these large vessels, quite a number of them, and uh, reports it to the authorities. They find in those vessels um, these 2,000 year old copies of every Old Testament book except for Esther. I'm just preserved <laughs> in this mountain. And that the, so the scholars over the past so many years have been taking time to compare what we, what the Dead Sea Scrolls to the actual Old Testament records that we have and find that pretty much everything is consistent. There's nothing that really is, is, is that much changed. And the point there is that God in his providence allows all this time so that now in today's world we can pick up the word of God and say, you know what, thus says the Lord. It, it's, it, is, it has been tested and tried Over time, we know the the veracity of the Word of God. Why? Because God's diligent in His providence. So that's a diligent search. Finally here, a diligent decree. A diligent decree. What we read next is totally unexpected. This is vintage Yahweh stuff. This is the kind of stuff that we say, this is the stuff that God does. It's totally unexpected. It's totally out there. Because not only does Darius affirm the decree of Cyrus, but he now adds to it. You would have thought that the the, the, the Jews could not find a better benefactor than Cyrus. But God is not done with his diligent providence. He's still going to show us that he can turn the hearts of kings wherever he wills. And it's here that Darius extends beyond Cyrus' generosity. So jump down to verse 6 now of chapter 6. And notice we're gonna, there's three sections here. The first section really is this. Keep away. Keep away. Let the building project go on. Verse 6. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor uh, of the province, beyond the river, and Sheth, Bazanai and your associates... Keep away, verse seven. Let the work in this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. All right? Don't stop it. Now, this is speaking authoritatively to those officials, which would then permeate through the land, so that the people of the land now would have to abide by the wishes now decreed by Darius. Secondly, provide resources. Cyrus has said, yes, you can take money from the, from the treasury, but here specifically, Darius says, the treasury that it's gonna come out of is the treasury that is beyond the river. In other words, when the, that territory beyond the river gathers the taxes, they're going to pay for the temple building and for the resources in the temple to come out of that treasury. I'm sure Tat and I and his friends were not too thrilled about that. And it's not just money, but it's also whatever is needed. Look at verse 9. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. Why? Why? Verse 10: that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven." Ah, Darius has become a believer in the God of Israel. No, He's a pluralist. and pray for the life of the king of the Son. He's a pluralist. In other words, he, he wants all the different gods of the various different nations being worshiped and them praying so that he and his family can be blessed and survive. God uses even pagan thinking to be the means by which he's accomplishing his diligent providence. Isn't that amazing? Keep away. Provide the resources. This third one, be warned. <laughs> Judgment will come to those who, who alter this edict. Verse 11, and I also, also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it, does this shock you when you're reading? It's like, where does this come from? By the way, anyone here want to be impaled by a beam from your house? Probably not. I mean, this is, this is harsh stuff, isn't it? And his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall be put out a hand to alter this or destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Does that surprise you, friends? As we come to to this end of this section, which is rounded out here by um, this final decree, are you surprised at the diligent providence of God? Does it surprise you that God would... uh, Would allow a young man like Joseph to be sold into slavery by his very own brothers to suffer in that slavery on multiple levels but ultimately to be in a position of authority so that when his brothers come during a time of famine, he can meet the needs of God's slowly growing nation and provide for them a land where they could multiply. Are you surprised by that? Shouldn't be. This is vintage Yahweh. Are you surprised that Moses' mother not only got uh, got her own baby back after putting that baby in the water, but she raised him under state protection and with a salary for taking care of her own child. This is vintage Yahweh. This is how God often works. Now, He doesn't always work this way. So one of the cautions we have here is we're not guaranteed this kind of generous providence, but we have a God that does as he wills and according to his diligent providence. He does do this at times, and sometimes he does it in smaller ways. One of the songs that we sing here makes this point. Even when the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You are working for our good. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. Oh, you're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. And friends, isn't it the surprise of the gospel? You hear the the, the gospel message and you realize that you're a sinner. You say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want to be saved. And he grants you forgiveness, but he grants you so much more that you couldn't even comprehend before you knew him as your Savior. He gives you new life. He gives you new family. He gives you a new calling. He gives you new gifts. He gives you the Bible. He gives you the Holy Spirit that helps you to understand the Bible. He gives you hope. He gives you perspective. He gives you heaven. He just keeps on giving. God delights to go far beyond all that we ask or think. This is our God. He is a God who is diligent in His providence. I only leave you with four marching orders. Not going to say much about these, but these are, these are statements to help stir us from what we've just looked at. Number one, Be encouraged to stand with the people of God. If you're a follower of Christ, you are God's child. Stand with the people of God. Secondly, be emboldened to participate in the work of God. God has called you to serve Him in His growing kingdom through His church. Where are you serving? How are you using your gifts? What skills do you have to offer? What are you holding back? What places do you just need to step in and help because there is a need? Be emboldened to participate in the work of God. Third, be expectant of the surprising providence of God. I want you to anticipate being amazed at God's providence in your life or in the life of the church. So open your eyes to see what God could do Pray about things that are pressing on us. Say, God, would you please open a door? Could you please meet this need? Can you please, Lord, provide you know, the, the, the things that, that are before us? And I'm just thinking right now, I know we're in this facility. I love this facility. but It has limitations, Lord. We're, we're praying that the Lord would, would make a way so that we could have a place, we could have a building, we could have a resource that's going to better suit the needs of our church. Why can't we just pray that God would provide that? He is diligent in his providence. And then be exultant and praise the wisdom of God. Often his providence is best seen looking back, isn't it? (laughs) So you look back and you say, wow. (laughs) Lord, you're an amazing God. We prayed for this and we thought the line would go this way, but you took it this way, this way, this way, this way, and you gave us more than we were even asking. Amazing. Friends, the diligent providence of God. Be exultant and praise the wisdom of God. Lord, help us today. It's not easy just reading through a couple of letters. It seemed to be a bunch of formal jargon among rulers of nations. And yet, Lord, in the midst of it all, you're trying to tell us something that you are a God who hasn't forgotten your people, that you are a God who is actively at work in your people, that you are sovereign, and that you are diligent in your providence. Lord, you are purposeful. You are mindful. Your eye is always on your people. And Lord, when you move, oh, do you move. So Lord, would you give us confidence, and Lord, allow us to be encouraged that you are right now, in this very moment, at work, diligently doing the things necessary to bring about your providence, not just for our church, but for our lives as individuals, for our families. And Lord, may we be faithful to identify ourselves with you, to be humble to recognize our own sinfulness, to see, Lord, your, your word breathed out by you as the authority for our life, and Lord, to carry out those responsibilities you've given us. We give you glory and praise, Lord. We ask this now in your name. Amen.